0: Our sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 9 to 13. These are the words of God. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. Let us pray. Father, your word says that you oppose the proud, but give grace to the humble. And so we ask for a spirit of true humility of understanding and insight and counsel as we consider the text of Holy Scripture. For we ask all of this in Jesus' name, and amen. Amen. Well, last Sunday we saw that in these uh, opening verses of Mark's gospel, Jesus is presented to us as the fulfillment and transformation of the entire Old Testament. The law, the Psalms, the prophets, the writings, all of these find their fulfillment in him. And in these opening verses, uh, we've seen Mark weave together Old Testament quotations. He gives us uh, references, words, hints, images that are meant to open our eyes to show us who Jesus really is. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Mark wants all of us to say by the end, of the end of the book with the Roman centurion, truly, he is the Son of God. So far, we've also seen that Mark portrays Jesus as a new Joshua. Jesus is a new Joshua. His name, if uh, we were to say it in Hebrew, is Joshua. Jo- uh, Jesus is the one who, like Joshua, divides the Jordan River. We saw last week he tears heaven open and brings his people into the promised land of paradise. We have seen also that Mark presents Jesus as that paradise, that new holy land. He is the place where God dwells, as it says in Colossians 2.9, for in him the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. So Jesus is presented here as a new temple, a new tabernacle, a new place of rest for those who are weary and heavy laden. In Jesus, the people of God find eternal Sabbath. We have also seen that Mark portrays Jesus as a new Elisha, a mighty prophet who comes with a double portion of the spirit, who will work signs and wonders and even raise the dead. So when we see in this scene, which we considered uh, some of it last week, uh, when the Spirit descends as a dove upon Christ at his baptism, uh, everyone, of course, was thinking, Isaiah is coming to pass. Especially Isaiah 61, which Jesus himself will later read in the synagogue before the Jews. This is what Isaiah 61 says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Uh, In Luke's gospel, when he reads this, he he sits down after he reads this and he says, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Uh, And then they try to kill him. In Mark's gospel, as we will see next week, uh, the very first words that come out of Jesus' mouth in this gospel are, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. So that's kind of what we've covered Uh, so far. Uh, And this morning, I want to look a little bit closer at the meaning of Christ's baptism. What does it signify? And then we'll spend the rest of our time looking at verses uh, 12 and 13, where he's uh, tempted in the wilderness. So let's talk about Jesus' baptism. What is the significance of Christ's baptism? Um, As we saw last week, Christ's baptism is his anointing for ministry. So Jesus is being ordained here as a priest, as a prophet, and as a king. And this is what the gospel is. It is the joyful announcement that God himself reigns as king, that the kingdom of God has come, and as uh, that verse in Isaiah 61 says, that the year of jubilee, the acceptable year of the Lord, is upon us. Um, If you know anything about the year of Jubilee, it uh, was supposed to take place every 50 years. And under Mosaic law, this was the time when all the real estate reverted to its original tribal owners. So debts were canceled, slaves were released, and the land reverted to its original owners. This is what uh, the Jubilee is. But this uh, year of Jubilee had not happened for hundreds of years. It had been long delayed and interrupted because of exile and foreign occupation. First, they were ruled by uh, Babylon, then Persia, then it was Greece, and now in the time of Jesus, it is Rome. And because of the unique uh, political situation they were in, it was uh, a debated question whether the exile had really ended. Was the exile really over? Sure, they had a big temple, but their king, Herod, uh, was not really a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was certainly no son of David. And although there were some laws and customs that they could observe, they couldn't enforce all of the laws in the Torah. That's why they needed Rome to crucify Jesus. And so for the Spirit to descend upon Jesus at his baptism... And for the Father to declare that Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, is to announce to the world that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is King. And with the King comes the kingdom. And with the kingdom comes justice. And with justice, Jubilee. And with Jubilee, a return to possession of the land, the end of exile. This was the hope and longing for God's people. Um, in the Hebrew calendar, uh, the year of Jubilee starts, uh, corresponds with uh, when the king would be coronated. So there's, uh, in, the, in the Mosaic law, there's two years, so you might have like a fiscal year for your business, and then there's the school year or the calendar year, similarly in uh, the Hebrew calendar. So there's the ecclesiastical or priestly year, which begins uh, in, the, uh, in the spring with Passover, and then you also have what you might call the royal or kingly year. And that began with uh, the feast of trumpets and the day of atonement. So this is what Leviticus 25 says. It says, uh, then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month. And the day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. So think about what Mark is setting up for us, just the image here. This is a coronation that is happening of Christ at his baptism. And so you should kind of hear in the background the sound of trumpets blasting, of a great festival of a new beginning, of a solemn celebration that past sins have been atoned for, and the acceptable year of the Lord has indeed come. The baptism of Christ is what inaugurates the Jubilee. And as Jesus will say later, uh, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, of course, at Christ's baptism, there are no literal trumpets blasting. There is no great festival celebration. But what we do have is a sound that is far more beautiful, far more lovely than that. And that is a single sentence from God the Father. Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. In this single sentence, the Father brings together at least three different Old Testament references. And together they help us to see the significance of this moment. So uh, contained in in that one sentence are at least three verses, and I want to read these three verses to you and see if you can kind of catch the hints. Uh, The first is Psalm 2, where God says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. The second reference is Isaiah uh, 42. Uh, which I I think Joe actually read in the Matthew uh, New Testament reading, which says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. And then the third reference is from Genesis 22, 2, where God says very ominously to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering. So in this declaration of the Father's love and delight in Jesus as his chosen one, in this pouring out of the Spirit upon him, is uh, a revelation of his identity and destiny. Who is Jesus? He is the Davidic King of Psalm 2. He is the one who sits in the heavens and laughs. As Jesus himself will say in John 3.13 to Nicodemus, uh, No man hath ascended into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So in this scene, Jesus is a man walking around on earth, while at the same time, according to his divine nature, he is the Son of Man which is in heaven. Thou art my Son. Who is Jesus? He is also the royal servant of Isaiah, who will bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. If you know Isaiah, there are these four servant songs in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 52 to 53. Most people know Isaiah 53 from around you know Good Friday, the death of Christ. And if you were to look at those sections of Isaiah, you would see a very detailed portrait of Jesus that is written 700 years before his arrival. The father says, thou art my son in whom my soul delighteth. Who else is Jesus portrayed as here? He is the obedient son, the true Isaac, the true seed of Abraham. Jesus is the ram that was caught in a thicket upon Mount Moriah, who with thorns upon his head will be sacrificed for sin. To be a one and only beloved son of Abraham means that sacrifice is coming. And this is what the Father's voice foretells. So what is Jesus' baptism? It is an ordination service. It is anointing for holy war. It is consecration for his sacrifice. And as we see in the next two verses of our text, when the Spirit falls upon the beloved, he sends us off into battle. So let's look look at verses 12 and 13 now together. Verses 12 and 13 say, and immediately the spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him. So you should think, wasn't Jesus already in the wilderness? Well, yes. He was. Uh, He had gone out to John to be baptized in Jordan, and immediately after his baptism, the Spirit drives him, we suppose, even further into the wilderness. Um, As we said in that first sermon, uh, the wilderness comes in many shapes and forms. There is the wilderness where many people gather and are made into a new society. This is the Exodus, so they're brought out of Egypt, they're in the wilderness, and it is there that God turns them into a tabernacle. He turns them into his dwelling place. And this is the wilderness of John's baptism. But there also is the wilderness of solitude, which is what the Spirit drives Jesus into now. So Jesus is away from the multitudes. He is Moses on the mountaintop while the people are down below, and he is in that wilderness for 40 days. As uh, most of you know, the number 40 is used in Scripture to describe a time of testing. So Moses was on Sinai for 40 days, Israel in the wilderness 40 years, Elijah traveled through the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. And now here Jesus, following this pattern, goes into the wilderness for 40 days to provoke Satan to battle. Now, uh, if you know the other gospels, you might find it peculiar that uh, in Matthew and Luke, there is dialogue between Jesus and Satan. And Mark, he doesn't give us any any back and forth, no dialogue at all, no, you know, see if you can turn these stones into bread kind of back and forth. So what is, what is Mark doing here? Uh, Mark just gives us one little detail that Matthew and Luke do not record, which is this phrase, and he was with the wild beasts. So no dialogue, no argument between Jesus and Satan. He just says, and he was with the wild beasts. Of all the things that Mark could have said about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, why does he tell us this? Well, the first thing uh, we should ask ourselves when we come to these kinds of details in the Bible is to just ask, well, what is uh, the significance of this thing in other places in the Bible? Right? When and where do wild beasts show up? So, you know, think about what uh, you know of the Bible. Are there any, where, where are wild beasts in the Bible? Well, the first place... That wild beasts appear is in the creation account. So, most things you can just trace them back to the opening three chapters of Genesis, right? Uh, So, in Genesis 2, Adam is naming all the animals, among which would have been wild animals like lions, bears, wolves, T Rexes, dragons, etc. And so, in the Garden of Eden, you have a man with wild beasts, and he is unharmed by them. He has dominion over them. No fall has happened. Later, we see in Numbers uh, 21 that Israel is in the wilderness. And do you remember what attacks them when they're out there? So they're complaining about the miracle bread from heaven, and then God sends fiery serpents. He sends these fiery, flaming seraphim to harass them. Uh, You see also in Leviticus 26 that God threatens Israel, saying this, If you walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. So in Scripture, uh, wild beasts are a sign of the wilderness. They are a sign of the curse. They are a constant reminder that uh, we are not in Eden anymore. Now, wild beasts are dangerous. They can kill us, they can kill our children, and we must reclaim dominion over them. So that's just part of the background. We, we go on. Um, that's part of the background Mark wants to evoke by this mention of the wild beasts. You could think also of uh, instances like Samson, right? He tears a lion, those kinds of things. But I think the, the most obvious connection that Mark wants us to make is with King David, So King David was anointed in 1 Samuel 16, 13. And this is what it says. Uh, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, uh, David, in the midst of his brethren. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So here's the scene. You have a a young boy, really. He's probably maybe uh, 15 years old at oldest at this time when he's anointed. Uh, And so you have this baptism, this anointing, and the Spirit is poured out on David. And what is the very next thing that happens to him, at least in the story, the way that it is told? Well, if you look at 1 Samuel 16, you would see that the very next thing he is called to do is fight evil spirits in Saul's palace. So remember, the spirit is taken from Saul. Now he has this evil spirit harassing him. He says, oh, bring me this man. And, and so David comes in, he plays the harp. And so David now has this power of exorcism. Spiritual healing is in his hands. So he goes, he's anointed. He goes off, fights evil spirits. And then in the next chapter, you have the famous David and Goliath scene. And do you remember what David says to Saul to justify that they can send him on behalf of the nation to fight Goliath. I can, I can really beat this guy. This is what he says. Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. So who is Jesus? In the wilderness with the wild beasts, he's the son of David, right? He's the exorcist who after his anointing will fight Satan and his demons. He is the one, as Psalm 91 says, and as Satan tempts Jesus with this psalm, who will tread upon the lion and the cobra. He will conquer all of these enemies and then he will go to the cross and cut off Goliath's head. Who is Jesus with the wild beasts? He is the last Adam. He is the one who comes to reclaim and exercise dominion over his creation. He is the one who comes to turn the wilderness into a garden city, who tames the wild beasts so that it can be habitable again. One of the prophecies of the Messiah, one of the signs that you would know that the Messiah's day has come is that he would be able to domesticate wild animals. Um, And in scripture, especially if you read uh, like Daniel's visions, remember empires are described as these kind of composite beasts. You might have a leopard with wings or something like that. So when God shows uh, Daniel in a vision the power of the four kingdoms, they are described as various wild beasts. And then this stone, this rock from a mountain is going to come and uh, uh, rule over them all. So Jesus comes to fulfill this promise from Isaiah 11, which you probably have heard before. This is kind of a Christmas uh, passage, and it says this. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, right? So he's a, he's a son of David, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, And the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So why was Jesus with the wild beasts? Because he is the rod from the stem of Jesse. He is the shepherd king who comes to bring peace and justice to the nations. So, as much as you know, it may be true that lions will eat straw one day. I don't know, um, maybe. Uh, but animals, as you know, in uh, in the Bible are uh, images of other nations, and this is a prophecy of Jesus coming to rule over the Gentiles. He is the one who makes lion and lamb to lay down together. So I ask you: Is that the Jesus that you know, that you love, and you worship? because that is the only Jesus there is. And he has come, and Isaiah says, of the increase of his government, there shall be no end. He will reign until he has put all his enemies beneath his feet, including our nation with its you know, eagle and stars and stripes. So that's our text. Jesus in the wilderness with the wild beasts. Um, and I want to close with uh, just one practical application for us from these opening 13 verses. Uh, You might have felt and noticed that Mark's gospel is very fast-paced. Everything is said to happen immediately. And uh, (laughs) you might also have noticed that these sermons have been very dense with me just reading you Old Testament references. So, uh, That's because Mark covers in 13 verses what Matthew and Luke take four chapters uh, to cover. So this this is a lot of material. It feels like you're drinking out of a fire hose It's because you are. But this is intentional, and we'll pick up the pace later on, just to set the context for us, to understand uh, the moment that is really happening that's significant. You have to have, uh, you know... Mark assumes you guys all have the Old Testament memorized, and you'd know exactly the hints that he's dropping, okay? So because most of us don't have the Old Testament memorized, we got to do a lot of this work. So with that, uh, I want to make sure we slow down and make sure we are applying this to ourselves. So I want to just give you, uh, give us all a single exhortation from these opening verses. The, uh, my exhortation to, to all of us is this, and that is, uh, learn to love the wilderness, learn to love the wilderness. I'm not talking about uh, hunting or, you know, hugging trees, but you can go do that too. Uh, but I'm talking about uh, when God wants to change you, he has to kill you first. When God wants to change you, he has to kill you first. Uh, and that's what baptism is, right? <laughs> baptism is death. It is union with Christ's death. And uh, you might think, okay, I've died. <laughs> now can I live? Well, yeah, but uh, what does God do with People after they're baptized. He takes them off into the wilderness. The next thing God does is separate you from your old life. Israel was baptized in the Red Sea. They got out of Egypt, but then God had to spend 40 years getting Egypt out of them. And where does he purge us of our old life and habits? He does this in the wilderness. The wilderness is the place of testing. It is the place of temptation. And if you follow Jesus and receive the same Spirit that Jesus received, the Spirit will drive you into the wilderness. So just learn to love it. Learn, as Paul says, to walk, to keep in step with the Spirit. By the wilderness, of course, could mean any kind of trial. It might be sickness, it might be depression, it might be unwanted singleness, it might be 9 months of hard pregnancy. It might be the loss of a job, it might be the loss of loved ones, it can be anything in between. The wilderness is just the place that make you that makes you feel uncomfortable. And when in God's providence the spirit drives you there, uh, you must not complain. You must not grumble. You must not resist the Spirit, but rather we must embrace and love the test that God has given us, because it is there in the wilderness that God rids us of ourselves in order to make us strong in Him. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.9, But we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead." If you know the Apostle Paul, do you really think he needed lessons in not trusting himself? <laughs> right? He had been to heaven. He had seen things that he was not allowed to speak of, and yet he says, I die daily. God had to do that for the Apostle Paul. How much more uh, must he do that with us? So learn to love the wilderness. Love the places where God rids you of self reliance. And here's the thing, if you go there, that is where you will find the great men and patriarchs of the faith. You will find Moses, Elijah, John, Joshua, David, and of course the Lord Jesus himself. So count it all joy when the Spirit drives you into the wilderness. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, you know uh, and have fitted uh, trials for us that we might grow to to wean us off this world of earthly mindedness, and God, I ask that we would be surrendered to you, that we would not be uh, caught up chasing the things that the world chases after, but as you command, we would seek first that heavenly kingdom and your righteousness, and know that everything else will be added unto us. We ask that you would help us to do that this week, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank mm-hmm.